Um, so I'm Bob Nelson, and I'm in Santa Monica, California, and it's a pleasant day, and uh, I am lucky to live in a pleasant neighborhood. But in in the moment, you know, everything is spectacular. You know, and uh, I love the fact that there are many moments today where everything feels spectacular. All right, so you set the tone there. So I've got to say that uh, I've been in and out of being uh, sober for probably three to four decades. And now I, uh, I have uh, 4,000 202 days today. So that calculates out to 11 plus years. And um, it's been the best trip of my life. Uh, but I, wanna, I want to uh, begin with uh, how a meeting began last night at uh, a We Agnostics in the Las Feliz region of uh, Los Angeles. I was waiting for the speaker to begin and I happened to have, you know, with my microphone off, I happened to have Leonard Cohen playing away. He was, uh, he was in the middle of a piece he wrote, I think he wrote it, uh, 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 entitled That Don't Make It Junk. And the first line in that song is I fought against the bottle, but I had to do it drunk. And that's me before this current 4,002 days of continuous abstinence. And then the speaker began to speak. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was something like I'm, I'm going to begin, but you all know, I guess we're all in the same bus together. At least that's the way I see it. And that's been my experience in this period of, of abstinence, continual abstinence within Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I am an atheist. It's never bothered me. Uh, the beginning of this 4,002 days started with the, my situation, which I'll briefly mention in a moment, where I had to go to what I call the Jesus meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it didn't deter me one bit because I had arrived at a place of desperation that uh, it, uh, it was more important not to take that first drink again. So by way of the sort of mandatory background, did you have a horrible, you know, traumatic being uh, during your formative years as a child? And I can say just for the formality of it, it has nothing to do with the fact that I appear to not have any craving anymore during this entire 11 plus years. But just for the formality, I was almost killed at six years old by a truck running over me. 
and um, the entire left side had to be rebuilt. And um, it certainly was a factor in feeling less than growing up and trying to compete with all the other little boys because uh, I was physically, uh, you know, one leg at that time was noticeably shorter than the other. Uh, you know, with time and growing up, everything equalized, but I always felt less than in that situation, competing in an athletic and a physical way with, with my male friends and males in my life. And then I had a mother who, because of her own fears, uh, told me in the face of something contrary, my real behavior, she told me, I don't think like that. You don't act like that. And you don't feel like that. And I only realized with time, and this would be time where I was abstinent, but not in a program years ago, that uh, it wasn't real parenting. It was like, uh, keep, keep, keep somebody for finding out who they really are. And perhaps that's a factor in my repetitive going back to the bottle every time I couldn't handle something. I went back and started drinking again. So um, I knew I was a lackluster uh, kid in school. I uh, barely graduated high school. And, certainly couldn't go to university. So I went to what then was a community college where I am right now, Santa Monica Community College, it was called back then. They, they even had a section, they had a trade school as well as you know trying to make up for my lack of paying attention in high school. But when those guys got a hold of me, they found in me the ability to actually think clearly. And uh, I, uh, I became interested in uh, science. I became interested in how things work in biological systems. And that was, that was brought on by reading a little book called The Microbe Hunters by Paul de Gruff, who was all about a lot of the 18th century discovery of bugs and bugs being the cause of disease and into the early ninth, uh, sorry, not 18th century, then the 1900s and then, I'm sorry, the 1800s and then into the early 1900s. Um, Almost simultaneously, but a little earlier, I had uh, the experience, which I now know makes me what's called historically as a diplomaniac. Um, it was used by physicians for defining people uh, in the uh, 
1800s that if they had one drink of alcohol, they were instantly craving for more and would drink until you know they'd pass out. And that was the kind of person starting with going out with the guys as a teenager in, uh, in high school, uh, when you know we happened to be a group of guys that didn't have dates for the weekend and we'd get together and find some poor homeless person that would buy us booze and we'd get this stuff and drink it. And I don't remember the specifics, but I realized now how much I enjoyed the feeling it gave me, whatever that feeling was. And I wanted more. And by, by the time, a few weeks later, that the guys got together to go out drinking, I had already figured that beer didn't have enough alcohol, that I would have malt liquor because I could get, I could get that feeling faster. So my type of alcoholism has never changed over the years. And fortunately today, I haven't participated in it which is, I know, because of the number of times that I went in and out, that it takes one drink and my, my craving for alcohol would be full-blown today. I'm sure of it without testing that. I did it too many times and hopefully I will never be doing that again. So I knew even though after Santa Monica College, got, you know, supported the idea that I was teachable in terms of academics. They, they said, you're going to Berkeley. And in those days, I'm old enough. I arrive in Berkeley in the 60s, and we're in the middle of anti-war protests. We're in the middle of free love, and we're in the middle of using every kind of mind-altering substance possible. But at the same time, I have this passion growing because I was able to get research jobs as an undergraduate involving the genetics department and what the professors were involved in. So I had these parallel things running in my life, managing what is clearly alcoholism, but being interested enough in, in problem solving. I mean, that's, that's what scientists do. They, they have a phenomenon and then they say, what could be the possible cause of this phenomenon? So uh, I had the illusion that sometimes that drinking made it easier for me to solve, you know, to participate in problem solving. I know today due to this period of, of abstinence and clear-headedness I've had for 11 years that uh, that is not the case. <laughs> it was an illusion, uh, but I did maintain uh, my uh, staying in school, uh, you know, sort of separating the drinking periods from when I had to show up and collected a bunch of degrees and, and got a postdoctoral fellowship and started trying to participate in the real world and make a living out of being an academic scientist. 
And I happened to look up this morning thinking about this, that uh, I think I wrote it down here, that time and time again, I would be able, yeah, here it is, that just at the wrong moment in my career, where it was critically important to present myself in terms of research and teach, teaching, uh, I would be, quote unquote, uh, a genius at getting tight and in other ways avoid getting the job done. I would shoot myself in the foot time and time again. And then I would have bailouts. And one of my bailouts, I was at, the University of Nebraska as a young professor. And uh, I noticed an ad in Science Magazine. They were looking for somebody to develop uh, animal models for, for uncovering the genetic, the specific genetic changes necessary in mice to alter their uh, behavior, to alter the type of behavior they had when uh, allowed to drink alcohol. So off I went to Washington DC to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And I actually did that. Uh, and in part because when I was an undergraduate in Berkeley, um, there was a young professor who offered one of the first courses in behavior genetics. And he had developed lines of mice that were, were selected and then inbred for uh, one aspect of alcohol mediated behavior modification called the short sleep and long sleep mice. And if you were part of the population of mice that were short sleep, You'd give them a, a dose, a weight, a uh, weight appropriate dose of alcohol, and they wouldn't even wobble. I mean, they didn't even appear drunk, while the other line of mice would appear uh, so drunk that many of them died during the experiment. So, it, so I was I that was my first uh, job when I got to National Institutes of Health. Now I'm gonna defer talking about all of the wonderful things that uh, if, if there's a lull, I can talk about uh, the current lines of inbred mice that, that are bred for craving, or how about fruit flies that when sexually rejected increase their alcohol content. This is just something I do as a hobby. I don't expect this to have anything to do with what is important for my personal recovery from alcoholism, but it is stuff. It's the stuff I got trained in. Um, so what I'd really like to do now is talk about when my, um, the events of my last drink, the beginning of this period of abstinence. 
uh, I was, I had arrived at a place of, you know, just being a falling down drunk who just didn't care anymore. And somehow I ended up in the hospital uh, here in St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, where I had returned to UCLA and I was doing research on a number of things there. And um, instead of dying, uh, I have no memory of this. I have no memory of how I was picked up, how I was dumped in the hospital. The, five, uh, the three or four days I was in uh, uh, first the ER and then the ICU and uh, they, they you know, shot me up with the stuff that prevented seizures. And I woke up on a gurney being shipped across the street to a nursing home where my sister, the poor thing, having to take care of me, take care of business, because I couldn't do it, um, expected me to go in that nursing home and die. And I didn't. I simply stopped drinking. I didn't crave anything. And recently, in, re, in, in, uh, in relating this part of my story to, I think it was the Toronto group, there was, there's a woman there that I had speak at another meeting recently, um, Penny. And, I, and I, I was musing over why Penny, why do you think I voluntarily stayed for seven months in a nursing home, isolated from the world. Uh, this is not an alcohol recovery facility. It was a place, I guess, where stop the world, I wanna get off. And somehow, and then she put it in context for me. She said, you were protecting yourself from yourself. You were protecting you from your own probable actions of going back to drinking. And this was a place where all you had to do was stay there, you know, and do nothing. So finally, I, uh, since I never craved alcohol or anything else again, so finally I uh, said, it's time I need to do something. Now I'd lost every financial means except for um, social security. And thanks to my sister, uh, um, taking care of that business for me, uh, I, uh, they in this nursing home were able to find uh, one of these mom and pop uh, board and care places in the San Fernando Valley, which would agree to take my monthly social security check minus $32 um, to have board and care. And I used that $32 to walk virtually every day to this 
come to Jesus AA meeting that was a mile and a half away, and I could put at least a dollar in the in the uh, kitty for that meeting. And it never occurred to me. I I think that all of my awareness of what Alcoholics Anonymous could do, should I seek help within AA, you know, to not try to do this thing in the arrogant way of I can handle it alone, that it would work. Um, it just, it was like a, a complete difference in attitude. This is what I have to do each day, walk to this meeting, walk back, and complain about the food at the board and care place, of course. And that's what I did. And uh, for at least a year or more, I, uh, I would go to this meeting because it was the only thing I could travel to within the distance I could go. And uh, I could go on foot. And I started a, a beginner's meeting and I had a wonderful time. Everybody that was, that decided uh, because they had a meeting seven days a week and the grand poopas of the meeting wanted nothing to do with the, the, the retreads and the, and the young beginners. And so I, uh, I started, uh, uh, wrote a format for a meeting and had a wonderful time with these young kids. Every Sunday afternoon, we had our own meeting and it was a godless meeting. Because by then, I, my, it was my way of sort of pulling away from the Jesus people. And it was not an overt, you know, I'm an atheist and therefore we don't do this and we don't do that. We used that little book, Living Sober, which just was a practical guide for daily, daily abstinence and uh, it worked. And then uh, some people started taking me to other meetings in the Valley. There was a meeting in Burbank that caught my attention. And a friend that I made at the original Jesus group would go to this meeting. And I started noticing the, you know, every meeting has a certain certain uh, ambiance. I mean, there's certain uh, there's a certain feeling that meetings have. Different meetings have a different feeling. And I noticed that there were there were a number of men in this meeting that really had their sobriety together and I would listen to them sort of sitting around them and I found out that they were all part of a, a men's only meeting uh, called the men's happy candle makers a physical meeting because you know that this is long before the COVID years and I began to overhear what they had to say and any one of them I said to myself, self, you should have a sponsor. You used to have one in one of your previous sober periods back on the west side, but here in the valley, you have nobody. And one night, any of these men 
had, they were so put together. I, I went, any of them could be my sponsor. This is where I could perhaps be able to get help on a one-to-one -one basis and see what to do next. And uh, one of them in passing was talking to another one saying, of course, I have trouble getting people to let me sponsor them because I'm an atheist. And boy, when he said that word, I went, wait a minute, I got to meet this guy. So long story short, I became a uh, avid member of Men's Happy Candle Makers. Uh, that gentleman has been my sponsor, more of my interrogator, who said, because he came out of traditional AA, are you desperate enough? Or are you willing to do what I say and I can save your life and you will not go back to drinking again? I said, yes, and that's how our relationship began. And today he is still my sponsor, mainly my interrogator, because guess what? As a person with no guidance, I had a lot of bullshit going on, a lot of ego going on, I still do. And my interrogator pulls the wool out from under me or over my head and, uh, the relationship can be one of yelling and screaming at one another, but there is nothing but mutual concern for each other's sobriety. And uh, it's been an amazing trip uh, in, the, in the most, uh, <laughs> let's, let's take a trip way. Uh, in these years, I've had uh, a life full of fears. I've had a life full of worries. I've had a life full of joys and goodness and living um, with personal response, developing personal responsibility and caring about the well-being of others as much as I care about my own. I've been in love. I've lost love. Then I learned how to love without having to own anybody. And uh, I, got, uh, I got to a place where I revived my interest in science. And in that, I revived my interest in it's time to get a job. And I applied at various places. And I, I ended up spending six years of this 11 years teaching at that very same community college which had, which had now, you know, puffed itself up to Santa Monica College, teaching something I never dreamed that I would ever be teaching is uh, human biology and human biology for non-majors. And I spent every other day that I wasn't lecturing learning what I had to learn so that I could translate it into uh, language that uh, the rest of us could understand. And that included me, instead of leaving it in biomedical language. And uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID and the cutbacks and all that, that took care of we adjuncts at that place. But I had a, I've had a wonderful time. The other thing, in terms of real world stuff, in parallel, the minute uh, I began sobriety almost, then I had been avoiding uh, taking care of myself. And someone said, you know, you can't 
you can't assume the responsibilities of caring for others and and being part of the real world if you don't take care of yourself. So I took care of. Uh, I mean, I I fortunately, you know, um, took what little money I had uh, now that I was teaching and. Uh, and made sure I had a good supplementary health insurance and I had uh, you know, Medicare and I took care of prostate cancer in a way that was robust. And uh, after 10 weeks of external radiation, radiation oncologist said, go home and have a life. And I've never been bothered with any, anything since then. And then uh, one day, not necessarily could, could sequentially, but I, I woke up with just crippling, uh, it seemed like just for, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and went to uh, a specialist who said, I've got a pill for you. And if you respond to it, you won't have the symptoms. I mean, I was like this and now there's no symptoms. Then I had a, a it's time to get a uh, hip replaced because I was in diet, you know, pain all the time from a hip that had worn out, et cetera, et cetera. And it just has gone on with that. And, uh, you know, it's no big deal. It's, um, it's just, you know, learning about age. I, uh, what I should counter with right now is to say that three months after I, stopped drinking. I went back for a physical and I had absolutely no uh, physical damage that would have been done for, would have been uh, the possibility of, of real organ damage from, from alcohol, uh, you know, from using alcohol, no cirrhotic liver, no nut, nothing. I was certainly one of those that had, and I know I'm not alone, many people can drink almost to death and really have no organ damage and that you could relate to drinking. And it, uh, it, that has been the case. I'm now in the middle of having a uh, device put in that will be put into my heart with a catheter uh, uh, to avoid uh, having a stroke from uh, AFib that I've had for a number of years. So I'm at a place right now where, uh, at least in talking here, um, I don't wanna take up any of your time uh, with, because I know people go to, go to AA meetings to also share, and I don't wanna just consume the whole time. But if there's a lull after you guys share, I have some wonderful anecdotal stuff. Uh, due to my years of focusing on um, trying to identify genes that are important in alcohol-mediated behavior in uh, not just mice, but in fruit flies, in worms, <laughs> and um, a wonderful story about uh, how, and may, maybe some of you already know this, how the Irish, since we're in Ireland, uh, who took the pledge in the 1800s, 
that uh, the pledge, if you're not Catholic, was to stop drinking uh, by edict from the Roman Catholic uh, bishop, minister, or whoever was in charge, and how the pledge was a serious business not to drink alcohol. And from that, a doctor in one of the counties of Ireland discovered that you could drink ether and get much the same effect as you used to get from alcohol. And it's very, very funny. And if I don't talk about it today, maybe uh, uh, I can give people a source. If you wanna see the incredible ways in which people will go out of their way, people and animals go out of their way to get inebriated it's if you're sober it's it's a belly laugh if you're a falling down tongue chewing wretch of an alcoholic that i used to be it's not so funny so anyhow i think i'm going to end it there and let everybody have a chance to talk thank you for your time